To our new passengers, aloha and welcome. As you board, please move across your car to make room for everyone, and kindly offer available seating to those needing special assistance. The show will begin momentarily. Thank you. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Welcome to Dave's Disney View podcast. Provided on our own version of the information highway in the sky. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking please. Thank you. Dave's Disney View is a look at the Walt Disney World Resort and sometimes beyond, as seen through the eyes of Dave, a frequent visitor, a one-time cast member, and an engineer who simply enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. Now, please keep your party together and put on your virtual mouse ears. And by all means, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, it's Dave again. Welcome to another uh, Dave's Disney View podcast. Uh, in the past, I've talked about how Disney kind of expands its reach out and how they do different things. And what I'd like to do is go back in history today and talk more about how Disney became what they are today in Walt Disney World. And to do that, I've brought along a guest with me, Rick Fogelsong. He is a professor of political science at uh, Rollins College. And Rick, about 10 years ago, wrote a book called Married to the Mouse. So, Rick, how are you doing today? Just fine, just fine. I'm pleased to talk to you about a favorite topic of mine. Excellent. I read the book and really enjoyed reading it. Um, A lot of books are written from an academic side that tend to be a little more academic and don't really appeal to the masses, but I thought this one was a really nice view of uh, the history of Walt Disney World um, that was written for anyone. And I I just wondered if you could tell me how you came up with the idea to write about Walt Disney World. Um, What was your motivation to get started there? Well, I moved to Orlando in 1984 and was intrigued when I came to learn that the Disney company here is not just the theme park that everyone knows, but that they also have a government, a government that might be seen as the 68th county in the state of Florida, uh, highly unusual, where the Disney company exercises the powers and responsibilities of a general-purpose local government like the city of Orlando. And so as a political scientist, I was intrigued with how they got those powers and how that had worked out when you give public powers to a private business corporation. Now, I didn't start on this book right away. I was finishing another book, and then I did yet another book, and it wasn't until the mid-'90s or so that I was able to focus my attention upon Walt Disney World and that eventuated in the book Married to the Mouse. Very cool. So why the title Married to the Mouse? I mean, obviously it has the connotation of, you know, a marriage and a relationship. Um, Could you enlighten us a little about why the title? Well, you mentioned something earlier about uh, academic tomes. I I guess you didn't use that word. I decided early on that it would be a big mistake commercially and otherwise to write a book about the Disney company that was merely for an academic audience, given the wide interest in the Disney company and Walt Disney World. And and so I wanted to make the book accessible, and I wanted to avoid the kind of uh, jargon, or we call it theory, in the academic world that we use. And, and so 
I hit upon the concept of, of love and marriage, and here's why. It's not just about being cute. Um, marriages are relationships of mutual dependence. Husbands, wives depend upon one another. Uh, there's this uh, adage that men say, but women say it as well. It can't live with them, can't live without them. And, and that really describes the relationship between uh, a, a big company and the local government or local community where each depends upon the other. The company depends upon the city government or county government, as the case may be, to provide uh, roads, uh, to provide infrastructure, water, sewer, uh, to provide uh, a place for their workforce to live. And, and, and I could go on. And, and in turn, obviously, cities depend upon companies for a tax base, for an employment base, and whatnot. And, and, and so I use the title Married to the Mouse um, to invoke that kind of uh, imagery. And the chapters of the book correspond with the stages of a marriage, um, uh, from the seduction to marriage to honeymoon and so forth. The final chapter is entitled Therapy. And I've had people ask me, well, uh, wh why didn't you make the final chapter divorce? And, and my maybe glib answer, but it's nonetheless pertinent, is you can't afford a divorce in this relationship. There are too many children. That is to say that mm -hmm. the Disney company is dug in here in Orlando. They're not going to leave or threaten to leave. And in Orlando and Orange County and Central Florida and the state of Florida depend upon the Disney company as well. So when there's conflict, which there has been and which I write about, uh, everybody wants to work it out because of the danger of letting that conflict get out of hand. Turning to the book, uh, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. I was not aware that Disney was involved with uh, moving to uh, Missouri uh, originally and uh, trying to build something there before they uh, announced their Florida project. I and mean, I thought that was a fascinating piece of uh, research that you uncovered there. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, a, it is certainly a, a, a cute story. And when I stumbled upon it doing research at the Disney archives and the company headquarters at, in, in Burbank, I, I, I had to chuckle myself, and as you know, it's a story about how the Disney company, after the success of Disneyland in California, began to look for a site for an East Coast Disneyland, knowing that people from east of the Mississippi were not coming to Disneyland, and that that's where the preponderance of the American population at that time, uh, we're talking about the early 1960s, lived. And so they were slated to be part of a development project that included the Arch in St. Louis and Bush Stadium there. And Walt Disney was not entirely comfortable with this because he wasn't in charge, because it wasn't entirely a Disney project. They were a partner in a larger project, and so uh, nonetheless, and his uh, troop of top executives came to town, that is, to St. Louis, to sign the papers to do the deal. And on the fateful night, I guess you might say, when they were there to meet with the local politicians and bankers and so forth, and Augie Bush, Bush, who reportedly had consumed a bit too much 
um, made the statement a little too loudly. It caught Walt Disney's ear. I don't know, but I think someone would be a fool to build an amusement park in this town and not serve beer or liquor. Mm. Well, you understand why uh, an Augie Bush might say that. And not only was the line about beer and liquor and being a fool uh, offensive to Walt Disney, but also calling his theme park and amusement park, that was offensive as well. Walt, Walt walked out of the meeting and, and told his staff to get the plane that they were going to leave the next day. And when his top lieutenant said, but Mr. Disney, you know we're supposed to sign the papers tomorrow morning, Walt reportedly said, according to people in the room, it's all over, we're not going. And so that then led to, well, Walt Disney World in, in Florida. It didn't happen immediately that they looked to Florida. They looked really all down the East Coast. And, you know, I relate this to the language of love and marriage because though people in marriages don't like to think about it, had it not been for the failure of their spouse's previous marriage, they might not have been on the marriage market, hmm. you know, to do the deal with, you know, in the current marriage. And that's kind of what happened here, that uh, Walt Disney backed up her relationship with Augie Bush in the city of St. Louis, and that put him on the marriage market, right. the Disney company on the marriage market for a site for an East Coast theme park. And that eventually led to Florida and then Central Florida and then the Orlando area. Yeah, that's a fascinating analogy, actually, about having had a previous marriage. That's interesting. Well, previous courtship in any case. Oh, yeah, but, but at least the relationship there, that, that kind of led them down the path. So they came to Florida, and, uh, you know, your, your research leads us down the path of uh, what, you know, what kind of happened there, that Disney had this at least outwardly, he had this mindset of he wanted to build this this uh, community of tomorrow where he was going to have uh, people living and working. But you you kind of found that that really wasn't what he was really doing. I mean, more behind the scenes, the company was looking to find a way to to get what they wanted, and we're using that as sort of a uh, a leverage, a device to help them get what they wanted. Is that fair to say? Well, yes, there was some misrepresentation, some pretty significant misrepresentation that occurred on the part of the Disney company. Just quickly, Disney World in Florida is a response to problems that the company encountered in California at Disneyland. Walt did not like that the theme park there was surrounded by ticky-tacky development and that they were dependent upon another Orange County, the one in California in the city of Anaheim, to provide public services to them. So they wanted to correct that problem in their new theme park that was going to be bigger and better, and they had a twofold solution. One was to buy much more land so that they could buffer the theme park from surrounding land uses, and so their park patrons would not be looking across the street at some ticky-tacky neon jungle. Uh, the other solution was to have their own government so that they could provide services to themselves, police, water, fire, fire, uh, even law enforcement, um, but also to give them immunity from external regulation, land use zoning, building regs, things like that. They didn't want to have to deal with a government not their own. So they wanted these government powers. It's a kind of long story that I researched pretty closely and was able to find some documents that enabled me to you know, write about this with some detail and precision. But suffice it to say that 
the only way they could get the powers of a general purpose local government was to say that they were going to build a going community uh, with real residents, not just tourists, but real residents. And so that's what they told the state of Florida. Now, Walt had died by this point. He died in December 1966, very early in the gestation of Walt Disney World. And in early 67, a company now led by his brother Roy, they come to Florida, come to Orlando. And that's where they tell the news media and the politicians what they want. And they say they're going to build a going community with 20,000 residents where, quote, 20,000 people would live and work and play. And that phrase got repeated over and over again as they pushed their legislation through the state legislature to grant them a charter to create this government. And to come to the point here, I was able to establish from my research in the Disney archives, in particular from a memo that was found in Walt's desk when he died with comments from Walt and the margins of the memo written in, in handwriting that, um, that the company never intended to build a place where real residents would live, that Walt understood that if real residents lived there, then they would be able to vote there, and if they could vote there, then the company, regardless of whether they owned the land or not, would you know, not be in control. Um, so long story short, they said they were building a real city, but they never intended to build a real city with real residents. Uh, it was always a kind of canard in order to get from the state legislature what they wanted. That's pretty interesting. And I, I remember when I read your book, one of the things that that, that letter struck me, you know, because I, I had never heard about Walt actually realizing that problem. I mean, you know, as, as an outsider and kind of thinking about it as I grew up, I, I started to realize there was the inherent problem of um, being able to vote and being able to, uh, to, you know, to decide how your land is used and that sort of a thing if you're a permanent resident. And you know, I started to wonder about that when I saw that when I saw that note in your book, that notation in your book about that note. I was kind of fascinated that Walt really understood that problem. I guess I'm not surprised he was yeah, a very intelligent man. I was intelligent fascinated man. too, if I may uh, oh, absolutely. interject, because my hypothesis had been that you know Walt was a showman and an entrepreneur that that he that he didn't have good political sense that, you know, he thought that it might be possible to create a going community and still maintain control of it. Um, but what I discovered in reading this memo, not written by him, but rather written by an attorney for the company, and the attorney is trying to explain that we can only control this thing for seven years. There was some legal precedent for their ability to do that. And Walt wrote no in inch high letters in the margin there and, and, and said, um, every time the attorney, his name was Paul Hallowell, referred to real residents on the property, Walt crossed it out and wrote temporary resident slash tourist. Hmm. And so what that showed is that Walt, <laughs> Walt did understand the problem, that yeah. Walt did understand about politics and democracy and so forth and so on. And I won't make him... You know, I won't make him or the company out to be nefarious about this. Uh, you know, the quest for control is, is a kind of natural thing, and it may be that people of artistic temperament in particular want to have control over their product. And what was, you know, what was really good at that, everything that the Disney company did when he was alive required his oversight and approval. 
and it, you know he wanted to be in control. But the problem was, this is a democracy in America. You couldn't quite achieve that, and so they they did after his passing. But they did it by misrepresentation. Yeah, and I, I, actually, you um you point to the uh, the video that they showed that they uh, filmed at the um, Walt standing up and talking about the Florida property, and then they they go on and they talk about the, how people would live and work there. And I think that was one of the catalysts. And the thing I found interesting that that video is available on YouTube, and I've watched it a couple of times, is that Walt talks to a, talks up to a point. Then it's a some other some other voice that works for the Disney company yes. that kind of comes in and talks more about it. And I thought always thought that was interesting, and that always led to my doubt about Walt's understandings. Yes, and and when that I guess your listeners will understand this from what we've said, but uh, that that so-called Epcot film aired posthumously for Walt. It aired on February 2, 1967, and he had died in December of 66. So he's already gone at the time the the video is shown. I shouldn't say video. That's a modern term. The film was shown. <laughs> right. But it, really interesting. I mean, you know, so they, they got some of, the, um, some of the things they wanted. The Walt Disney Company got uh, prob- probably most of what they wanted in terms of autonomy and the ability to do some of the things they want. Can you tell us, give us a little bit of sense of some of the things that they have the ability to do as a company that you wouldn't normally think of a company having, um, you know, within their control? Well, the two that stand out is the authority to build an atomic power plant and also to manufacture and distill alcoholic beverages. Now, those are shocking, especially the latter. Again, we're talking not just about the ability to serve alcohol, but the ability to make it. And it's hard for me to imagine that they were really interested in eventually uh, exercising that authority. I can imagine that they would have thought about building an atomic power plant, understanding that atomic power was not then what we know it to be now. Right. Uh, it was not known to be dangerous in the way we now uh, recognize it is, uh, and they would have needs for power. I think what explains the the responsibility they asked for and got in those, for those two things and many, many other things is that they knew that they were in a power position like they would never be in in the future because, hey, they could not come to Florida if they didn't get what they wanted. Right. Uh, now they're dug in, and they don't have the same kind of leverage with the state legislatures. So they simply ask for everything imaginable, the kind of thing that you can imagine an attorney would advocate they're doing. Oh, let's just try to get everything. <laughs> and I suppose, too, that they might have thought about eventually selling the property and and having these powers would have been attached to the ownership of the property. So a subsequent owner might like having this authority that was attached to the ownership of the property. So they go about their uh, their business and they you know they open the they ultimately open the theme park later at a later time open um, what they envisioned Epcot to be. I guess the Imagineers came up with something that they, they thought kind of sort of met Walt's vision to a point of it's a vision anyway, but I don't think it's I don't think it's anything close to what Walt had thought about when he was when he was uh, developing the idea. No, it's not. And the official company story is that um, they were going to build Epcot, but that um, Walt, Walt died, and so they didn't know what to do. Now, there's some truth to that, but remember the sequence of events that Walt was already dead when they said that they were going to build the city. 
So you, you, you really couldn't blame the failure to carry through on the premature passing of Walt because he's already passed at the time they say they're going to build Epcot. And they said that they had the money to do it then and that that they were going to move right ahead with it, you know, when, in fact, it's a decade later before they do. And, and, and when they struggled to build something that was kind of like what they described, they had two competing ideas. Uh, one was a uh, world showcase, and the other was a technology park. And at, at some significant meeting, they decided to do both and just push the two <laughs> models together, literally. And that's why Epcot is what it is today. You know, half of it is a celebration of technology, and half of it is a celebration of world cultures. It's really interesting. I've heard heard Marty Sklar talk about that a couple of times, where he's yes. just you know he talks about how we just kind of pushed the, the two models together and came up with something. Kind of yes. an interesting approach. So you know, as you as you go through the book, it's um, I think it's a, you know really fascinating to talk about the politics of what happens uh, and how that relationship has evolved and changed over time with um, with the state of Florida and how Disney uses a lot of things to its advantage uh, in in terms of um, getting funding to build roads and uh, having some say in the uh, the original train that they that was intended to uh, to build a uh, to build a bridge between the airport and and uh, the Disney property and some other places as well and Disney had a lot of uh, had a lot of power and say in in those uh, exchanges and things that happened uh, yes they did the interest of the Disney company changed under Michael Eisner because Michael Eisner um, under pressure from members of the Disney board, uh, sought to develop the property for purposes other than a uh, theme park. And because the company recognized that the land that they owned, that they weren't, uh, hadn't built upon, had a, had a value, and that people were coming to Orlando and staying in hotels off property and going to other amusements off property. And, and so under Michael Eisner, the company rushed into hotel building hmm. and, and, and pretty soon had a dozen hotels on property and it kept growing. And once that occurred, then the interest of the company changed. And what I mean by that is that the company had an interest in keeping their patrons on property. And so when there were proposals to create a mass transit system that would run between the airport and Disney, and there were three such proposals over a period of time, initially the company looked with favor on that. Um, but then when political forces intervened and the International Drive Hotel owners said, hey, w wait a minute, why use government money to build a driveway to Disney's door. Uh, we want to stop on iDrive to service our hotels and, and our um, amusements. And, and it was hard to deny that request on the, their part. And so the, the, the planners of the road and the politicians agreed that, well, yeah, we should have an intermediate stop. And, and whenever that occurred, then the Disney company lost interest and more than losing interest they said if the train stops somewhere else before it comes to our property then we will not allow a stop on our property and since they own the land they had that ability to deny the train planners 
access to their property and space on their property for a stop. And and if you if the train was not going to stop at Disney, then it didn't make any sense economically. Would not have sufficient ridership, and so the projects were always killed for that reason. That's that's pretty amazing, you know. So so at, toward the end of the book, you get into a little bit about more current history, and uh, in particular, um, the uh, town of Celebration uh, that was built. The town of Celebration, you know, Disney markets it partly as Walt's dream. Clearly, that was not what I saw when I saw them start marketing it. I'm not sure it's quite fair to say that they market it as Walt's dream. Um, When I look closely at the uh, history of Celebration, what the Disney company said about it, I think that's more the work of the news media who saw Celebration as, as a response to well, the Epcot story and the fact that Epcot is not a going community, that the Disney company, that Michael Eisner himself, weren't really making that claim themselves. Um, their interest in the town was more about dollars and cents and real estate development because they had done an economic study of the land they owned and identified the property where Celebration is now as property that they would never use for a theme park. And so how then did they make money off that land? And they came up with a darn good idea from the standpoint of, uh, of, of developing a revenue stream. They took a fallow piece of land on 192, not a very attractive place to build a new town, and they made it incredibly valuable by building a town. And then, and, and then once they got started on that process, uh, Eisner, being someone who believes in or is interested in the new, new thing, whether it's about architecture or whatever, wanted to do the new, new thing in urban planning. And the new, new thing in urban planning was so-called new urbanism, building walkable communities. And so they, they kind of appropriated that concept in developing celebration. And from an economic standpoint, it was a success. Politically, not so much so. Uh, for a host of reasons, uh, one being that the people who moved in, and this was kind of interesting, were you know, true believers, uh, people who just thought that if they lived on Disney property that they would live the kind of idyllic life that the Disney characters lead <laughs> in the animation features in the Disney movies and so forth, and their marriages would be good and their kids wouldn't do drugs and so forth and so on. Uh, and, of course, in the real world, all those things didn't happen. But more specifically, there were a number of problems with the construction of the homes and buildings there, probably attributable to the fact that Celebration was built at a time when there was about 2% unemployment in Orlando, and anybody who could swing a hammer could get a job in construction. And in any case, there were a lot of problems with the construction. And though the Disney Company did not build the homes, they were done by uh, by construction companies, not part of the Disney empire. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, when people had problems, they blamed the Disney company, and the news media blamed the Disney company. And so it became a kind of albatross for them, and they eventually sold that property, um, I think among other reasons, because it was creating public relations problems for them. So that's that's kind of the the, the uh, essence of the book, talking about the history of the Disney company. Um, and yeah, I really think it's kind of interesting, and I encourage uh, listeners to pick up a copy of it. It's called Married to the Mouse. You can find it at uh, most booksellers. Uh, I saw it on Amazon the other day. Um, you can pick up a copy of it. Now, Rick, um, what else are you working on these days? you have a follow-up or other information about um, 
the Disney company that you're still continuing to follow? Well, I'll mention two things quickly. One, I've just finished a biography of Mel Martinez, who is the first Cuban-born United States senator and who was the county mayor here in Orange County when I finished the Disney book and someone I interviewed about Disney when I was writing that book. And uh, Mel, who came from Cuba alone at age 15, uh, has had a kind of uh, meteoric political rise from county mayor to member of the Bush cabinet to United States senator all in about four years. And I relate that to the rise of Hispanic political power and the politics of immigration reform and, and, and so forth. Uh, that book is entitled Immigrant Prince, Mel Martinez and the American Dream. But just quickly, something else. Uh, I have an earlier book before the Disney one that's a history of American urban planning. And, and I've had, and I teach in a graduate program in urban planning. And one of the things that fascinated me about the Disney property is how they were able to build what I would call a highly functional urban environment without residents. We talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And, and I have this interest in the question, is democracy the best way to build a city? Now, I believe in political democracy, but political democracy and capitalism, where land is treated as a commodity and bought and sold in pursuit of private property, both democracy and capitalism fragment control and make it difficult to do centralized planning. In the absence of centralized planning, it's kind of difficult to create functional urban environments. The great cities of Europe were built under conditions of feudalism. The United States is the first country in the world built under the, I'm going to call it, problematical conditions of capitalism and democracy, which once again fragment control. Asian cities, Singapore, good example, very functional city, but built under autocratic control. Now, again, I'm not advocating for dictatorship in what I'm saying, but, you know, it is a democracy. Excuse me, it is a challenge when you build cities under these fragmented conditions. And so how in a capitalist democracy is it possible to build functional urban environments kind of like what we see at Walt Disney World? So that's an interesting question um, as you as you think about the uh, the broader picture of what goes on, because you see communities that kind of come up and they have different models or things that they try, and, you know, it's uh, it's kind of hit or miss, I think. Um, well, you look at Abu Dhabi and Dubai, for example. I talk to architects and planners, and they love building in those kind of environments because they don't have to deal with uh, – planning and zoning commissions and activist citizen groups and so forth and so on. They can kind of go in, make a deal with the king, and then build what they want. And and there are ways in which that's good. But if you look closely at Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and I've been there and I've looked at their urban development, there are problems as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got great architecture but pretty bad urban planning in the sense that these great buildings are not well related one to the other. It's an interesting problem. Are you doing anything else with Disney? you have any other thoughts about uh, what's what's coming up or any uh, any other? Um, I know at one point you were thinking about maybe doing another book or a website or something dedicated to it. Do you have any other thoughts about that at this point? Well, I'll tell you honestly, I've wanted to move beyond the Disney topic. I'm delighted that my book has uh, found the readership that it did. I had never intended to you know, invest my career in the Disney topic, but um, 
the book gets continual mention a couple weeks ago in the Sunday New York Times magazine, and I'm pleased by that. Um, so maybe maybe someday I'll write a sequel or update the book. Uh, it did come out in 2001, so as you pointed out at the top of the program, that's a decade ago, and a lot's happened since then. Sure. So uh, I could update the book, extend it a chapter, write a sequel, Perhaps I will someday. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about the Walt Disney Company is it really does take on kind of a life of its own. There's there's a large following to it, whether it's a love or hate relationship or a mix of both. Um, there's a lot of people who take an interest in it, unlike a lot of other corporations, um, you know, some of your oil companies or some of the other companies that are out there that might, uh, you know, be vilified in some way. Um, certainly uh, the Disney Company has a lot of a lot of following there, and people are interested in why it why it is what it is. Well, that's right, and, and while... Uh, there are some parts of the book that uh, paint the Disney Company in an unfavorable light. That is remarkable only because of the very favorable public image that the company has. If if I was describing an oil company behaving in a rapacious way, that would not be so remarkable. But the Disney Company, because of their favorable public image, and I'm inclined to say no company in the world has an image as favorable as theirs. It's it's newsworthy when you know they are caught, if that's the right word, acting like uh, an oil company. Hmm. Um, and and so I, I should say that I guess in order to put some of my criticisms in, in context, politically their favorable image is for them their Achilles' heel that when things go wrong for them and they look rapacious, um, that's a national news story, world news story. Um, and so they, they scramble in order to fix the problem or to repair the image, you know, precisely because their image as a warm and fuzzy corporation is their stock and trade. It is, mm-hmm. you might say, it's their principal emotional asset. Um, and I, I have to ask, so uh, do you ever make it over to the theme parks and, uh, and take in the, uh, the sites and so forth? Oh, absolutely. I, I have grandchildren, and they love to go. And, 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 and I, I get calls from uh, academic friends who live elsewhere who are, who are wrestling <laughs> the question whether they should take their children to, to Disney. And I say absolutely. I mean, it's uh, taking your children to Disney uh, – uh, as a, I guess a credit to the Disney Company's Kid Vision advertising, where mm-hmm. they advertise to kids to get their parents to take them to Disney. You know, that's the visit to Mecca in yeah. the pop culture of America, the kind of thing that you owe your kids. Uh, and and so I say, for heaven's sake, there are Disney critics who are critical of the Disney cultural products who find disturbing disturbing messages in them. And that's not my critique, and so I, I have no problem with the, the the Disney movies, the animation features, or the the live movies with real human actors. Nor do I have a problem with the theme parks themselves. They're a lot of fun. Excellent. Uh, so this is uh, we're talking with. Uh Rick Fogelsong, he's a professor of uh, political science at Rollins College. He wrote Married to the Mouse, which you can find on uh, online at various retailers or in uh, some of the brick-and-mortar stores that I think still exist in this uh, society. Rick, I thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, I enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your good questions. Thank you very much. 
from all of us, thanks for taking a listen to the podcast today. If you're standing, please hold on to the handrails and stay clear of the doors until the show stops completely and the doors open. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your personal belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. As this concludes our journey, we hope that you enjoyed the show and that you drive home safely. Our thanks go to Doug at geekacres.net for his contributions to the show. And also to Craig for the original music you hear on the show. You can find Craig's music over at ReverbNation.com slash sound A. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the show, please feel free to contact Dave at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Show notes and links to other great content on the web can be found at disneypodcast.net. Now, I will raise the safety bar, and a podcaster will follow you home. Ha 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 ha!